Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew, and uh, it's my pleasure to be with you this morning looking at God's Word together. We're in the middle of just about a four-week series. We're going to do one more week, I think, next week, talking about what the Bible means when it calls people of faith citizens of heaven. Uh, in Philippians 3 and 4, Paul uses that image that we are citizens of heaven, which means that our hope and joy and peace are not tethered to anything or anyone on the earth. Rather, our ultimate allegiance is to heaven and to the heavenly king. And we're waiting for the salvation that comes from heaven, not some workings of things here on the earth. But if we're citizens of heaven, then of course that means that we are exiles here. If we belong there, it means we don't belong here. And that's exactly the way the Bible describes our time on earth. So in Hebrews chapter 11, for example, it says this. I'm probably going to come back to this text in the days and weeks to come. It says, they, all people of faith, it's, it's the hall of faith, it's kind of baseline Christianity there in Hebrews 11. And, he, and they say, they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on earth and that they were seeking a homeland, not the land from which they'd gone out, but a better country, a heavenly one. Now think about the image of exile for just a minute. It means the world that we live in is not our home. That we should not be settling down and trying to make a home out of, out of life here. Trying to make this feel like home. Instead, to live a life of faith. It says there is you have to go out from the world. You actually have to leave this country we live in and go off in search of a better one, a heavenly one. And it's a really powerful metaphor that I would encourage you to really spend some time thinking about. Because the more you live into your heavenly citizenship, the more out of place, the more uncomfortable you'll feel in the world. The more you'll come to realize that your desires and your deepest longings are for the stuff that is not of this world because we're strangers and we're exiles here, which means we're made for another world. Now, there's a great deal of biblical material that helps us make sense of this reality. This morning, we're going to be looking at Daniel, who is a prophet in the Old Testament. Daniel's a great place to start because Daniel was a part of the Jewish nobility that, who was carried off into exile in Babylon after Jerusalem, the capital city in Israel, was besieged and ultimately conquered by the Babylonians. His story takes place during his years of exile in that foreign city that was not his home. And it is the story, it's really a great story, it's a great book, it's confusing, but the, the, the message is very clear and very important because the story is really about how God would come to rescue his people and bring them back to their land to bring them out of exile and to bring them home. And at the center of God's promise of rescue was the son of man figure that we're gonna read about in just a minute, the coming cloud rider who would judge God's enemies and bring the people home and be king over the whole earth. And that really is the message of salvation for the Old Testament people of God. Now you might be familiar enough with the Bible to know that Jesus used the same imagery to describe himself. He called himself son of man. And, in, and to describe his ministry, in Mark 14, 62, for example, he says, you'll see the Son of Man coming, uh, excuse me, the Son of Man at the right hand of power coming with the clouds. And so what we're going to read here in Daniel ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the one who has come from heaven, bringing heaven with him, the coming cloud rider of Daniel's prophecy. And so let's read. Will you read with me? It's going to be on the screen. Uh, if you're at home, it's going to be on the screen in front of you, uh, there for you to see. It's also printed for you if you're here in the room in your worship folder. You can grab a Bible. We're going to read from Daniel chapter 2 and then also Jan Daniel chapter 7. And I'm going to have to do some explaining 
because these are some obscure things that are going on here in Daniel, but we'll do that. But let's read together, beginning in Daniel chapter 2. Hear God's word. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Daniel's interpreting a dream, but we'll get back to that. And then in Daniel 7, he says, uh, he reports, this is his prophetic vision. I looked, and thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. And I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, um, excuse me, I lost my place, and as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned in the fire. Again, don't get knotted up by all the details. We'll get to those. But look at verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages that they should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Now, a little bit of context, because obviously we need to do that, right? This is confusing. Uh, And maybe one day we'll have the courage to kind of preach through Daniel. We almost did that this fall, uh, but I'm kind of glad we didn't, because it is tough. Um, Daniel 2, let's look at that for a minute. The verses we read are part of Daniel's interpretation of a dream. If you're familiar with the story, the Babylonian king... Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. The king was troubled by the dream because in those days the people believed that that heaven, that the gods sent messages to them through their dreams. And so they they believed they were prophetic. And so King Nebuchadnezzar sought out someone who could interpret what the dream meant for him. But as he looked, no one could figure out the interpretation. All the magicians and the wise men of the kingdom, they were all confounded by the dream. All of them except Daniel, who was, again, a Jewish boy, part of the nobility, carted off into exile. And God supernaturally revealed the meaning of the dream to him because, in fact, it was prophetic. There was a message for King Nebuchadnezzar from God. Okay, so here's the dream. There was a statue that the king saw in his dream, a menacing figure, like a warrior statue, and its head was made of gold and its chest and its arms were made of silver, and its stomach and its midsection were made of, and thighs were made of bronze, and its legs were made of iron, and the feet were part iron and part clay. But what happened was, is as he was, you know, looking at this figure, this statue, there was a stone that was cut from a mountain, and, and here's an important detail, it's printed for you there in, in chapter 2, verse 45, cut by no human hand, Okay? Note that little phrase there. And the stone rolled down the hill and struck the statue and smashed the feet of clay into pieces and the whole thing was reduced to rubble. That was the dream. But what did the dream mean? 
Well, that's what he called upon Daniel for. And so here is the interpretation that was given to Daniel. And this is my paraphrase, okay? I'm doing a lot of I'm doing a lot of summarizing here so we didn't have to read all of it. But Daniel came to the king, and here was the interpretation the Lord gave him. He said that the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar saw represented the kingdoms of this world, the earthly, political, and military powers that ruled the world. And each part of the statue, remember, it was made out of different metals as it went. Each part was represented a different empire or kingdom that rose and then fell away as they were conquered throughout Ancient history. So the head of gold represented King Nebuchadnezzar himself, and then and the Babylonians, and then each part beyond that was a successive kingdom that would come and supplant the previous power and itself be established until a superior kingdom came and so forth. Now you can understand why King Nebuchadnezzar was so troubled. God was putting him on notice. That his kingdom would soon be conquered by a new world power which would rule the world for a time until they were also supplanted. And so on. And so you can read commentaries and and people say, you know, the Babylonians who gave way to the Persians and then the Greeks and then ultimately finally the Romans who ruled the world for over a thousand years. But ultimately were also conquered by the Visigoths. That's the way most scholars interpret the four kingdoms here. But that's not... The details are not important. The lesson is important. And the lesson is this. The lesson is that even the most seemingly invincible earthly kingdom is no more than a passing reality. They come and they go. And I got bad news. That will be true of America one day too. Probably not soon. But eventually, inevitably... Which is why the thought that we, and this is what has taken hold in our, in our culture, okay? That, that this idea that we can progress towards a utopian future through education and political coalitions and so forth is such a tired idea. God's kingdom should never be identified with any earthly kingdom or cause. And Daniel's interpretation of the dream reveals the exact opposite truth. Listen to what it says, verse 44 in chapter 2. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And it, this kingdom, this heavenly kingdom, this eternal kingdom that God is going to establish, it shall break in pieces all the kingdoms of the world and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forevermore. And so the stone cut out from the mountain, cut by no human hands, which means it's divine, it's heavenly, it's not from the earth, it is what breaks the kingdoms of the world in pieces. And it itself, we're told later in chapter 2, is destined to become destined to become a mountain it grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth i mean this is important imagery in the bible and it is an oracle of salvation that god himself would come and overthrow all the earthly kingdoms and establish himself as king over all things forever and that is the gospel in the old testament scriptures that is how they understood the good news of what god was doing in the world isaiah 52 7 is one of the first places where you get the word gospel. We talk about that word a lot. There are Old Testament roots, and here's one of the Old Testament roots of that word. It says, how beautiful on the mountains are those, are the feet of those who bring good news, gospel, right? And then it goes on to describe who publish peace, who publish salvation, who say to Zion, and here's the message, your God reigns. And that was their gospel. That was the amen Right? That was the thing that their heart wanted more than anything else was for God, their king, to come and rule over the world. And Daniel is saying, 
there will come a day when God will finally be king over all the earth. And his will will be done here as it is in heaven. Now that's an amen moment, folks, by the way, okay? And the fact that it doesn't resonate with us says something that we should pay attention to because it did to them. They knew that is the best news that there can be. You can imagine what good news that would be to a people, particularly people in exile. And that's part of our problem is we don't live from that sense of exile. And that's the message of Daniel's prophecy. It's all I got for you this morning. God will be king. But this also, okay, all of this will happen, again, as we've been seeing through these weeks, through a figure, through a solitary figure, through a person, through a messianic right figure described in chapter 7, Daniel 7, the cloud rider, the, the son of man. And so if you come to Daniel 7, you'll see that chapter 7 is a recapitulation of chapter 2. It's the same thing. It's another dream. This time, four beasts rather than four different parts of a statue. And the four beasts here, instead of kingdoms, they represent four kings. And what happens as you read there in chapter 7 is God just inserts himself into the, into the whole thing. And the, the, the scene abruptly shifts from this earthly political wrangling to heaven. And there you find verse 9, the ancient of days, uh, which is God himself seated on the throne and his clothing white as snow and fire coming out from him. These are images of God's holiness and his purity. And it says, verse 10, that the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So this is a scene of judgment. What's happening here is God is bringing the kings of the earth that are causing so much trouble for the people into judgment. He takes their dominion away. He smashes their little kingdoms to pieces. And again... Note that the hope of God's people in the Bible is not an earthly king or kingdom, but that God stands in judgment over all earthly rulers and powers and authorities. And God's kingdom is not identified with any earthly king. I mean, if you think about Revelation 5, in Revelation 5, there's this crisis in heaven because there is God on the throne and there's the scroll, which is the image of the execution, the executive powers given to whoever would carry out God's will on the earth and they look and there is none worthy and everyone in heaven and earth starts to weep because there's no one worthy to found you know to 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 carry out God's justice and execute his plans on the earth except the lion who is the lamb and the lesson there is that it isn't through any earthly administration but through the one that comes down from heaven that God does his will he makes an appearance here again, in the night vision of the cloud rider. And so scholars say that the image here is the divine warrior riding into battle. The clouds are his war chariot here. He's riding upon the clouds the way they would ride into battle on a chariot. And he's called, if you notice, they're the son of man. As a contrast to the other kings in the chapter, they are beastly. They're described as beasts. They're power hungry and full of boasting. But this son of man is different. And again, I can't help but think of that passage in Revelation 5. He is the line of Judah who has conquered because he is also the Lamb of God who was slain. And it was his humility and his self-sacrifice that is still to this day reducing the kingdoms of the world to rubble. Now one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself was Son of Man. He came preaching the kingdom, proclaiming himself the Son of Man, and he went about overthrowing demonic spirits and pushing back the curse. 
In his death upon the cross for sin established a beachhead for the kingdom of heaven to launch into the rest of the world. From the cross, the rest of the attack was launched. And all of those who belong to the lamb take up their crosses and follow him. But here's what we got to wrestle with. We have these sterilized versions of the gospel that are just too small. The gospel isn't, you know, just good news that, hey, you believe in Jesus. And when you die, you go to heaven and your sins are forgiven and everything's going to be okay. It is, of course, it involves that. But the gospel is so much bigger than that. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel is the good news of the invasion of heaven into earth to overthrow sin and death and any and all who are aligned with their agenda until all things are made new. Now, I said last week we have to distinguish between the content and consequences of the gospel, and the content of the gospel is this. Our sin has alienated us from God. In Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to him and made right on the basis of grace alone. But having been made right... It doesn't stop there. We are then sent with renewed effort and authority to begin the work of making the world right again through similar acts of love and sacrifice, not power grabs and so forth, but always from the margins. We do this from the margins because don't forget, we're exiles and we're strangers here. We belong to heaven, not to earth. We are citizens of a different country making our way through this world. And all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, quote Jesus very clearly is saying, and it's always at the end of, it's, it's toward the end of all of the Gospels as he's being interrogated by the high priests and by the religious leaders. Here's his quote. He says, you will see the Son of Man coming with clouds in great power and glory. Now, it's a direct quote from Daniel 7. And there, in context, is a reference to his second coming. So just like the exiles in Daniel chapter 7, we are exiles who are waiting for the coming cloud rider. And when he comes... When he comes again from heaven to come down to the earth, then our exile will be ended, but not until then. Not before then. And while we wait, we are under a clear mandate to both work and to wait. To wait and to work. To work as we wait. To do the dance between working and waiting. And that can be confusing. And it's why we're trying to take the time to really help capture our imaginations and frame our lives uh, appropriately for us because that's what we need to do. The Son of Man has come. The inauguration began with these words. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry. And so we enter into that. We work alongside of him to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what he's told us to do. He said, seek first the kingdom, but at the same time, the Son of Man is also coming again, and the kingdom will not be all the way here until he comes at the end of the age, and so we wait, and that's the balance. you see how tricky this can be? And that's what it means to truly live as a citizen of heaven, to figure out the messiness of that balance between working and waiting and waiting and working. And I read in a commentary on Daniel this week these words, the commentator said this, he said, Daniel can have been no more immune from the influences and the pressures of, this, of his environment and the spirit of the age than we are. He can hardly have avoided at least an occasional lapse into Babylonian ways of thought. His vision, however, brought Daniel back to sanity and truth. And I think that's a perfect summary. That we are prone, of course, not to lapses into Babylonian ways of thought, but to American ways of thought that are just as contrary to the way God is shaping us through his word, and we need these visions too, and their theology, to recover a sense of sanity 
that would make us, I think, somewhat immune to all of that is happening around us, to the anxiety, to the victim, all that we see and experience in our world. And I've been kicking around the idea in my head in recent days about that, about holiness as a kind of immunity, as a spiritual resistance to the toxicity of the world. Wouldn't it be great? And so Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 might seem like obscure, and we've only had a few minutes to walk through them this morning. I would say to you, come back to them. They are a much-needed dose of reality and truth. Now, Daniel's writing from exile, and we are also in exile. And as long as we're in exile, we need to be repenting and believing the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is already here, and the kingdom is not yet all the way here. And there are a couple of sins that, in particular... An exile, a person in exile can experience, uh, and, the, and the experience of exile can actually promote. And I would say there are two, and I want to finish just by talking about each of them very briefly as we, as we work towards this repentance and faith that we're called to here in the scriptures. And the two I have in mind are idolatry and despair. I really think we have to be really careful about those two things, about the twin, you know, the twin dangers of idolatry on the one hand and despair on the other hand. And I want to finish by talking about each and then seeing how the lesson here in Daniel... And as it's, you know, made even more revealed, revealing in the Gospels, how it can turn each of those sins into a song so that you can sing your way through your exile. And if you do, your song will sound a lot like Psalm 97 and Psalm 99, which is why we printed them. Therefore, they're just one verse in each there in your, in your text. Now, so let's talk about idolatry first as we start, start to round, round third for home, okay? Idolatry, by that I mean it's a failure to wait, There's an obvious temptation in exile when things are just going bad to hope for a change of circumstance. We talked about this last week, in fact, but the exile was a judgment for their sins. This is what starts to come out as you read through Daniel, that that, that God really wants them dealing with their sins. And the only way home for them was repentance. And he had been talking, he'd been preparing for this uh, with them for, for hundreds of years through his word. Daniel finally prays in chapter 9, and it's clear as he prays they've not yet repented. They've not yet wrestled through why it is that God has sent them into exile. They're not dealing with God. They're just looking for some solution on the horizon of their life to to make their circumstances a little bit better, and that's idolatry. Idolatry is not properly taking account of God and instead making some earthly reality, some earthly thing, a person or a movement or an outcome, elevating that to, to... either an, an, un, um, an un, inappropriate kind of, um, sorry, association, that's the word I'm thinking of, with God himself, or elevating it to, to something that becomes ultimate, okay? And this is a real danger, I think, for us. I, I remember walking into Publix in 2016, just after the last election, and I ran into a lady that I had not seen for many, many years uh, as we were just passing one another in the aisles, so of course, you know, you got to do the thing. Well, how are you doing, you know? And so I'm making small talk. How are you doing? You know, like as if we're going to, you know, and then we're just going to go right back past one another. But anyway, I just, I, it was just so striking to me because I just thought we were going to have small talk. How are you doing? And I remember her answer. I am great now that God is back in the White House. That's idolatry, right? And it was just so sitting on her heart. It was the good news she was singing in her soul. Any earthly hope, 
any earthly dream, any earthly cause or movement that captures your heart and claims your ultimate loyalty so that you stop dealing with God as if he is ultimate. It's an idol. The people of Israel made a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai because they grew tired and impatient. They wanted results. And when you're in exile, you're desperate for results. And without knowing it, you can turn to idols because they promise to deliver. Idolatry is pragmatism. And faith is much harder. Faith is much, much harder. Now, we can be repenting of idolatry by believing the truth. And the truth we would be believing into is the truth of Psalm 99.1 and learning to sing it. So look there where it says, the Lord reigns. That's the truth. Isn't that a great truth? God is, hello? You with me? Okay. Shout at your TV if you're home because these people in here are acting like they're dead. Okay. The Lord reigns. That's the woohoo, amen, hallelujah moment. Okay. That really should be. That's what that should do to your heart. It really should. The Lord reigns. And then it says, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Trevin Wax, who works for Lifeway and teaches at Wheaton College for months now, and I just so appreciate it. Uh, I follow him on Twitter. And for, I mean, a number of months now, every day, he's been tweeting just the, the same thing every single day. Jesus is Lord today. Jesus is Lord today. Jesus is Lord today. Every day, day after day, because that's true. And because it's the truth that we most need to remember and live our lives from. So when the psalmist says, God reigns, so tremble. He doesn't mean, you know, God is scary, so you should be, you should be afraid. You should be peeing your pants, right? Or excuse me, my language there. But I mean, you know, that, that like, you're just, you're just so afraid. You're, you know, he doesn't mean that. The people trembling. And the earth quaking is describing an existential undoing in light of God's reality. That's a big phrase. What do I mean? I mean that before God, what we see here in the scriptures is when God comes, the mountains quake. They melt like wax. The mountains can't stand up in his presence. They just melt away because he is such a profound reality that before him, they just are reduced to nothing. And if it's true of the mountains, it should be true of us too. God is on his throne. He is reigning. And against that truth, all the other hopes, all your boasts, they just melt away. I mean, the sovereignty of God over all things can shake you so that all of your panic and your impatience, it just falls right off. Things might feel out of control, they're just out of your control. Okay? And there's a difference. But God is still in control. And he is ordaining all things according to the counsel of his will for his glory and for your good. And that truth has the power to shake the idolatry right out of you. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. But the other sin that exiles are prone to would be the sin of despair, which is a failure to work where you can become tired of the waiting and become overly pessimistic and cynical. And no matter how hard you try, nothing ever seems to change. And this is sin too. You can stare at the evil in the world in the face and become intimidated by it because it just feels overwhelming and become discouraged and just hardly able to get out of the bed in the morning. And I want to say that is, that is sin. It's failing to believe that God is greater than whatever obstacle you're up against. And so let me say this also. If idolatry is failure to reckon with your sin, 
Despair is this being weighed down and discouraged by your sins, being buried under the avalanche of your own of your own wickedness so that you lose your confidence and joy and just give up. So idolatry is the problem of not taking your sin seriously enough. Despair here is the problem of not taking God's grace seriously enough. And so we need to be repenting of despair by believing the gospel truth. We're going to try it again. And here's the gospel truth. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. There you go. See, now you're starting to catch on. But look here, this is interesting. The Lord reigns, but what is the response here in in chapter 97 of Psalms? Let the earth rejoice. So the same gospel promise, the Lord reigns, but different response, not trembling this time, rejoicing, because it is good news. Remember Isaiah 52, your God reigns, that's the gospel. And here's the thing, it's so easy to look out and see how bad things are and forget that God reigns. But here's the truth. There's not a single thing happening in the world, not a single thing happening to you that did not originate in God's heart. God rules from his heart, not just with his will. And why is that good news for us? Well, because God's heart is full of love for those who are his. The apostle Paul put it this way, he said, This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Well, what's the will of God for you? And that's the point. Whatever's happening to you is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You can say that about whatever's happening to you in your life. It's God's will. But the best part is that it's God's will for you in Jesus, which means that all God does in his sovereign sufferance to his heart for you in Jesus. Therefore, you look at whatever's going on through the lens of God's love for you in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying there. So don't despair. In whatever God is doing, because it's springing forth from his love for you. And whatever hap- whatever's happening right now in this moment in your life, whatever's happening in the world is what God's doing. So let's do the logic. Therefore, rejoice in whatever's happening. Because it's what God's doing. And it's springing forth from his heart of love for you. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, it goes on to say, you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Now, Revelation in the New Testament serves the same purpose as Daniel does in the Old. It's intended to cut through the insanity with truth. And here's the message there. And it's just, again, a summary, I think, of... You could say this is the summary of the entire teaching of the Bible in Revelation chapter 11, where it says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Friends, hear and tremble. Walk in humility and God-reality. But hear and rejoice. Be full of courage and confidence and hope and get to work. Because that's what it means to live as a citizen of heaven in an exile in the earth. Hebrews 11 said this of those who figure out what we're talking about here. It says, the world was not worthy of them. And to that I say, amen. Would you pray with me? And so, Father, may that be true of us. May you continue to shape and fashion us with your words to, uh, to call us away from the idolatry we so easily give ourselves to or the despair that can, that can just come and, and invade our hearts and our souls uh, like a dark cloud that we can't seem to get out from underneath. Would you um, bolster us with this great gospel news, the Lord reigns. 
you are, you are putting all of your enemies under your feet. Lord Jesus, you have come and you have, you have introduced the kingdom of heaven into this world and it is growing and be, like a mustard seed into the greatest of the garden plants, into a tree under which, under which shade uh, the whole world can come and find refuge. It is the little rock that has smashed the kingdoms of this world to pieces and is itself becoming a great mountain that fills the whole earth. With that, that's true. It's what's happening right now. It may not feel like that to us, but it is what is happening right now and the day is gonna come very soon when you, when you will come again. And in finality, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and you will reign forever and ever. You will take away every other dominion and you will establish your kingdom forever. And that is the day our hearts long for. And so make us keenly aware and may it shake out of us our idolatry. May it, may it bolster us out of the despair that we might feel, that we might be people of such confidence and joy and humility and reverence that it would be obvious that we are from a different country. A holy people. That's what we want. That's what we want to be. That's what you want us to be. Holy as you are holy true image bearers of God in the world. That's, that's our desire. And so make it so. And then as we sing, continue to encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's no greater king in all the world. There's no greater heart in all the world. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is just this, that if you believe in him, then his heart is for you. And if his heart is for you, then that means he's a king for you. That's what these words mean, that he sends you now with the promise that he's going before you and he's gonna go with you and his face is turned towards you because it was turned away from Jesus upon the cross, that he bore the guilt of your sin and the wrath of God came down upon him so that now he can turn his face towards you to bless you. That's what these words mean. And so go uh, with the good news that God reigns on your hearts and go and work while you wait for him to come again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.